So as we jump back into James, uh, it's important for us to remember why he wrote this letter. It was, remember, a, a passion project of sorts for him. He, he loved the church. He absolutely loved the church. So sometimes when we read James, you think, oh man, that's really, that's really hard. He, he was really hard on the church. But remember, he wrote from this deep passion to see the church be the community that Jesus called the church to be. His whole point is to draw followers of Jesus back to what was most important. In his mind, following Jesus, it's more than just an intellectual ascent or, or something that only involves part of our lives. It involves our whole lives. Our faith, it should drive all that we do, what, what we say, how we act. It should drive our relationships. It should drive our actions. It should drive absolutely everything. This morning, we're in a part of the letter that connects how we live in the present with what's coming in the future. It builds off of a section where, where James focuses on, on living wisely. Eugene Peterson translates the end of the section like this. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessing, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy enjoy its results only, only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. He he doesn't shy away from the reality that, that living in community with one another as followers of Christ is hard work. It takes work. It's good work. But it's not easy work. So he turns to the importance of submitting to God's will, to staying humble before he warns of the potential pitfalls connected to ignoring present needs at the expense of the future. Ignoring what's right in front of us while looking toward what's coming. Starting at James 4.13, we read this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's really encouraging stuff, isn't it? (laughs) You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. When our kids were a bit younger, five or six years ago, there was a phrase that, that faith is probably hearing now that I really didn't like hearing. It was a phrase that, that parents and grandparents who had been through that life stage often said to me. It was always after one of those nights where the baby was up multiple times, and then right when we'd get the youngest child, the baby to sleep, the toddler would walk in, and the toddler would walk in, and then I'd finally get the toddler back to bed, and then the five-year-old would be lying in my spot. One of those nights where you just don't sleep. Other adults who had been in a similar spot, they'd, they'd see the sleep deprivation on my face. They'd see the exhaustion. And inevitably, someone would say, the nights are long, but the years are short. Some of you may have actually said it to me at one point. That's okay. I forgive you. That's okay. I, I, do, I do forgive you. Anybody willing to admit they've used a line like that at some point? I have. I, I've used that line, that line at some point, and um, it's totally a, a true statement. The nights are long and the years are short, but back then, hearing that line drove me crazy. I couldn't wait for the day when all three of our kids would actually sleep through the night. On the same night. <laughs> on the same night. And that we would actually get some rest. And now, as odd as it sounds that our kids do sleep through the night most nights, there's a part of me that misses those sleep-deprived days. Whether it's teaching young children to sleep through the night or looking forward to, to completing one season of life, high school, and moving on to college, or, or finishing college to getting that job, or completing one task in our house so we can move to the next task. It's easy to get preoccupied with what's coming, to get preoccupied with the future. We think things will get better when I finish this or that, when I have more time, when I have more resources. It's a, a lesson that we're taught early on in life, early on in life with every child dreaming of what they will get to do when they grow up. As we look toward the future, it's easy to miss the gift of the present. That's what James is writing about here. As we look toward the future, it's easy to miss the gift of the present. And the irony is, as we look toward the future, the best way to prepare for it is to live in the present. Is, is to look for the places that we can be obedient to what God has for us and listen and pay attention here and now, today. I think it's, it's one of the, the reasons that when Jesus is preaching the section that we read earlier from the Sermon on the Mount about storing up treasures in heaven uh, and, and trusting God, he quotes Proverbs 27, the first part of Proverbs 27, where he says, pay attention to what God is doing now, to what God is doing today. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's going to be plenty of, plenty of things to worry about then. Pay attention to today. So James, he echoes this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he warns of a few different ways we can go sideways by looking too far into the future at the expense of what God has for us today. 
He starts with, with the sin of pride. He tells the story of a merchant who maps out a year-long trip. A, a year-long trip with, with the assumption that the, the trip would be extremely profitable. That he would return home with, with all the money that he needed and more. James writes, you, you make all these plans, but how can you be so sure it's going to all work out? You're nothing more than a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Ouch. Now, we might not typically think of business travel as something that, that was common in the first century, but it, it totally was. Aquila and Priscilla, Lydia, people who we read about in Acts, they're examples from the early church. They were business people who traveled. They traveled to make a living. They were business people. And when they traveled, just like today, they had to lay out their plans ahead of time. So over the last month or so, our, our family took two trips, kind of our, our last hurrah for the summer. One was a vacation to Mammoth, and the other was to, to visit um, where my, my parents grew up in Indiana, just outside of Chicago, uh, for my uncle's memorial service. I know some of you might be comfortable with just getting in the car and driving. Anybody comfortable doing that for vacation? Just saying, hey, I don't know where we're stopping, but let's go. Anybody comfortable doing that? Some people are wired that way. I know that was, that was how, how it was for Haley and her family when she grew up. they just get in the car and stop and pull over and sleep when it was time to pull over and sleep. I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired that way. I like to know where we're sleeping. I like to have a schedule of, of what's, what's coming. And it doesn't need to be kind of down to the, the minute. But at least, okay, in the morning... We're doing this. In the afternoon, we're doing that. Now, these two trips were, were kind of our, our last trips for the summer. And now we're back home. We're back home and school's just around the corner. So we're, we're planning to sit down with our kids. We've already tried to do it our, ourselves to sit down and say, okay, what does the fall look like? Well, on Monday we have this. On Tuesday we have that. On Wednesday we have this. On Thursday we have that. I'm already tired. I'm already tired. But for me, the way that I'm wired, planning is important. It's an important part of life. Whether we're traveling or whether we're mapping out something else. Whether we're talking about our own individual plans for the next few months or we're setting goals and objectives for our family or goals and objectives for our, our church here at WPC. We have to be careful with setting our expectations. That's what James is saying here. He's reminding us to not place too much weight on our own plans. To not be so laser focused on where we think we might go that we miss somebody who God puts in front of us right now, today. A good definition of pride is the assumption that we have a better idea of what God wants for us and what God has for us than God does himself. A good definition of pride is the assumption that we have a better idea of what God has for us than what God really has for us. So James says, check your pride. Be, be careful with what you assume. And along those lines, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of your capabilities. 
The, the Greek word that he uses for boasting in verse 16, it, it paints a picture of a person walking around and making guarantees that they have no way to follow through with. It, it's like the, the fifth grader who runs for student class president. And, and he says, hey, if you vote for me, if you vote for me, you're only going to have to go to school four days a week. He has no way of guaranteeing that that's going to happen. But he runs on that platform saying, hey, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do this if you vote for me. The sin of boasting is wrapped up in the idea that we're able to control our destiny and other people's destiny by our own power. And it's as dangerous today as it was in the first century. So we live in a culture that celebrates hard work and often individuality individuality as well. So pulling ourselves up by our, our bootstraps is often seen as a virtue, seen as a good thing. The danger that James warns of isn't so much connected to, su- to success itself, but to the belief that we have arrived where we are today under our own power, that we did it ourselves. It's the act of patting ourselves on the back, ignoring others, even putting other people at harm, Along the way, when our family began taking longer road trips together a few years ago, we said, how are we going to pass the time, whether it's four hours or whether it's 10 hours? How are we going to pass the time? And we started listening to the Chronicles of Narnia together. It had been a a while since I had read The Magician's Nephew and, and forgot. I forgot how cruel the magician is. And you all familiar with The Magician's Nephew? You should read it if you aren't. It's a, it's, a great, it's a great book. There's a line where the magician is talking with his nephew and he says, Men like me possess a hidden wisdom. We know better than everybody else. We're freed from common rules. We're cut off from common pleasures. He thinks rather highly of himself. That he's above the rest of the world. So he can do whatever he wants. And then he turns to his nephew Diggory, and he says, but it's a lonely destiny. Of course, C.S. Lewis always writes with some sort of deeper meaning in mind, and with the magician's nephew, there's a reminder that thinking too highly of ourselves, boasting of a position that we think we've obtained on our own, that we think that we've earned at other people's expense, it is a lonely place to live. We're built to be in community. And when we believe that we're above that community, we run into all sorts of trouble. In verse 17, James writes about turning a blind eye or, or staying quiet or, or failing to use our resources when we can do good with our resources, if we can meet needs in our world. Now Jesus talks about this in his parable of the talents. Remember that parable? Three people are given money and, and two take what they've been given and they invest it. They use it. And when the master returns, the master celebrates them and says, you've done a great job. You've done a great job. The first two are celebrated for taking risk. And then the third that we read about, he thinks he's going to be celebrated because he's done something smart. He thinks that he's going to be celebrated. He plays it safe. So he thinks he's going to be rewarded. And 
Instead, he's punished harshly. He sins against his master and himself. As James writes, he's telling the church, hey, don't make that same mistake. Don't make that same mistake. To put it pretty bluntly, an important part of following Jesus is giving. It is. It's recognizing that God has given us all kinds of gifts. And we need to be good stewards with what we have been given. When we belong to a community of people who follow Jesus, like a church, we pool our resources together to take care of the needs in our community and the needs in the world. And at some point, if you belong to a church community for, for a long enough time, there's a good chance that you'll be both on the receiving end of those gifts and the giving end of those gifts. That's what it means to be a community of faith. When we read about the early church in Acts, that's what made the early Christian communities so dang attractive. They shared with one another. They took care of each other. No one was left out. And other people looked at the church and said, wow, how do they live like that? They're so selfless. They give of themselves. What would it take? What would it take for us to heed James's warning and to live like the early church, to share all that we have? James writes that we're called to address the needs around us, to do good. And when we turned a blind eye to the needs in front of us for the sake of tomorrow, we run the risk of being disobedient to God. James continues with that point at the beginning of chapter 5, and this is the part where I kind of stopped and said, ouch, that's, that's harsh. Now, there's a whole lot of danger associated with misusing or hoarding our resources. Scripture reminds us over and over again, the the whole story of the Israelite people is what you have or what you think you have is God's. You yourself are God's. So use your time, talent, and treasure as if it is a gift from God because it's God's anyway. So as James addresses the wealthiest in this community, we we should hear again Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount about storing up treasures in heaven. Now, most of the early church was was pretty poor, often because they sacrificed for one another. And it would have been easy for them to look at their wealthy neighbors and to say, wow, I really want that sort of life. Or, wow, we, we sacrifice for each other here in the church, but man, we're so much better than those people that are corrupt and keep it all for themselves. They would have read James' words as a warning against being jealous or a warning against condemning their neighbors. When James writes about farmers not being paid a fair wage, it reminds me of something that Haley and I experienced when we were living in Malawi. Uh, sadly, one of, one of actually the, the biggest crop in Malawi at the time, I think it's still the case, was tobacco. And if a family could afford to grow more than just maize, more than just corn to feed their own family, they would plant tobacco to sell it and to to make some money. Driving along the the country roads, you would often see the giant tobacco leaves hanging 
as they were growing and dry, or hanging, excuse me, as they were, were drying out in the sun. And the day that the tobacco market opened, it was like a national holiday. Everybody paused. The, the president rang a bell to kick off the selling market. It was, it was exciting for everyone. But the farmers, the people who grew the tobacco and then hung it and did the work of bundling it all together, they made very, very little money. They would sell to a buyer, usually a local buyer, who had a little bit more money than they did, who would then sell it to another buyer, usually a Malawian who had more money, who would then gather a bunch of bundles together and sell it to a buyer. So by the end of the road, there were four or five steps before it actually got to the farmer. The farmers did all the work and they made almost nothing. Almost nothing. We could easily say, well, that's just tobacco. That's just in developing countries. But we would be fooling ourselves. It's one of the reasons that paying attention to to how we use our resources, to what we, we buy is important. We're, we're called to be good stewards with what we've been given. And we're good stewards with what we've been given as an act of obedience to who God has called us to be now and today. Now in the middle of these four warnings, James, he slips in this kind of short sentence about how to actually plan for the future. So he spends all this time saying, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. This is dangerous. Be careful. And then he gives us one short sentence about preparing for the future. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. And I know, I know it might be easy to say, well, well, James, that's good and all, but easier said than done. Easier said than done. We want concrete answers. That's a great idea, but we want concrete answers. And my response to that is, at least from how I read and interpret James, we know that we are following the Lord's will when our planning is rooted in the conviction that our own lives and all that we have is not our own, but is the Lord's. It's both daunting and incredibly freeing all at the same time. We know we're following the Lord's will when our planning is rooted in the conviction that our lives and future are not in our own hands. May we be a people who trust that, God's hold, that God holds us as we address the needs around us today. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for James's reminder that our actions speak louder than words. Lord, help us to be obedient with what you have given us today as we trust you for our future. We pray these things in your name. Amen.